Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. And today, we have the author and journalist James McGuire on to tell us the story of Ed Sullivan. James wrote a book on Ed's life, Impresario, The Life and Times of Ed Sullivan, and we wanted to hear from him about the life of this TV legend. James, thanks for joining us. Let's start at the beginning. Where did Ed Sullivan come from? What made him who he became? Ed Sullivan was born in 1901 in, in Harlem, New York. Very poor Irish Catholic family. And I mean, I, I think they, they did not even have the money for, for medical care. He had a, a twin brother who died, you know, very, very young, like shortly after his birth. He also had a sister who, who died very young as well. I mean, it was, it was a desperate, very poor life there in Harlem, New York. Uh, his father was known to be someone who, who really could not get along with people very well. 
he was a civil servant. At, at first, he made a, almost a middle-class wage, but then he, he got into a number of disagreements with people and his, his you know, socioeconomic status fell and fell. So when Sullivan's two siblings died, I think the, the parents just could not take it anymore. They decided, you know, we need to move out of Harlem. We need to move uh, you know, to a little town. So when he was really a very young boy, they moved to Port Chester, New York, which is just north of New York City, maybe, uh, oh, you know, half hour or so. Really, it's basically a stone's throw away from New York City. It was, for him, a very, you know, way, way more pleasant place to grow up. And in terms of, you know, his life around the house, his mother was uh, very big into was it opera and music. They, they played the piano around the house, and she played, uh, you know, recordings of, uh, you know, opera. So it was like there was a lot of exposure to music around the house. You know, that played a big role in him. He, he dreamed of New York City. He, he always thought, you know, how am I going to get to New York City? First, he, he wanted to, you know, as World War I broke out, he had dreams of like going overseas and actually becoming a soldier. But he actually wasn't quite old enough to be a soldier. So he, he went down to the recruiting office and, and tried to fake it. But they, they would not let him into the, uh, into the army. So he was very disappointed about that. He had to go back home. But he did move. He took a, like a very low-level job as a sports writer in New York City in the 1920s. And that for him was a dream come true. I mean, uh, he wrote about this, this show in Manhattan that, that featured dogs. It was like a huge dog show. And he, he saw his byline on the newspaper and he was hooked. And that was always something that, that drove him. I mean, he, he always really wanted to be famous. He wanted to be known. And seeing his byline in a newspaper was just, you know, it, it, was, it was addictive for him. And so, he had quite a bit of success as a sports reporter. He bounced around from newspaper to newspaper all throughout the 1920s. It was never hard for him to get a job. He was he, he wrote about you know any, any kind of sports, football, baseball, swimming, golf. I mean, he, he wrote about it all. The big twist for him that sort of moved him further into the world of entertainment was that he switched from being a sports reporter to being a gossip columnist for a newspaper. And that really suddenly got him into the world of fame in New York City. So he was constantly hanging out and getting to know and writing about celebrities and athletes, you know, movie stars, radio stars really in the early days and later on movie stars in New York City. So and, and it gave him, you know, really a still more touch of fame and he loved it. Ed's life was driven by a competitive zeal. Can you tell us about his first major rivalry? There was a gossip columnist in New York City, a guy named Walter Winchell. His, his name is unknown at this point, but in, in the 1930s in America. And, and Ed and Walter were, were fierce competitors. Uh, the two of them had a fierce, fierce competition. And of course, a, as big as Walter's um, gossip column was, really it was Walter's radio show. He had a national radio show, and, and Ed saw that and thought, you know, I need to get my own radio show. So he rounded up some talent and he would interview people on a radio show and it was a complete flop. And the problem was that he wrote a very colorful gossip column, but he himself was not a performer. He was, you know, he had a very sort of a droll, you know, downbeat, you know, delivery. But still, he really wanted to be, um, he wanted to be famous. And so, you know, in the 1920s, radio was, was the, uh, the domain. So he, he tried to get another radio show. And, and again, it, it would last like six or eight weeks and it, it just would not work. You know, he, he worked the gossip column angle really hard. It's hard to remember exactly how big newspapers were, you know, the 1920s and 1930s. You know, they were far, far bigger than they are now. And in a world without television and a world in which movies were really in its infancy, you know, newspapers were the mass medium. And so, and so being a columnist at that time was, was really a big deal. 
And that helped Sullivan, of course, get guests for his radio show. And, and he had a total of five radio shows, finally. And every single one was canceled after a fairly short run. You know, one of the things he did, partially to compensate, and also as an outgrowth of his gossip column, was that he began to uh, organize vaudeville shows in the 1930s in New York City. And, you know, the important thing to remember about that is that, you know, America was in a depression in those days. And so, you know, people would buy their, their they would pay their, you know, a dime to get in, a nickel to get in for the vaudeville show. And they were a very, very demanding audience. If they didn't like it, you know, if they didn't like a performer, if they didn't like an act, they, they would certainly let let the uh, let the performer know they're, they're a rowdy bunch. And Sullivan, you know, produced vaudeville shows sometimes six nights a week, you know, five, six nights a week for years in New York City. And, and his vaudeville shows were sort of a precursor to the final television show in that it was a mix. It could be a comedian, a singer, you know, a, a mime, you know, maybe some sort of a, a bizarre oddity act, you know, a, a juggler. And they would all, all move really quickly. And Sullivan would emcee those vaudeville shows. Of course, there was live, live theater. And that really gave him a lot of experience in terms of how to put on a show. It, it, it taught him a lot. It also gave him that, that very, very immediate feedback. You know, he would stand backstage and he would, watch the, he would watch the performer on stage. He would watch the audience on stage. He would see, okay, how is, this, how is it, the audience relating to this performer? He, he became, you know, sort of very, very attuned to the idea of what it meant to build an audience. And we're listening to James McGuire talk about the life of Ed Sullivan, a man we all know or have heard of, but don't know the story behind the story. More of the life of Ed Sullivan here on Our American Story. Folks, if you love the great American stories we tell and love America like we do, we're asking you to become a part of the Our American Stories family. If you agree that America is a good and great country, please make a donation. A monthly gift of $17.76 is fast becoming a favorite option for supporters. Go to OurAmericanStories.com now and go to the donate button and help us keep the great American stories coming. That's OurAmericanStories.com. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like when the tailgate party shows up at your house after the big win. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this could sideline your savings. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. There's plenty to celebrate in March and Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. And we're back with our American stories and with the story of Ed Sullivan. And joining us is James McGuire, who wrote the book Impresario, The Life and Times of Ed Sullivan. Let's pick up where we last left off with James talking about Sullivan's experience in vaudeville and as a gossip columnist. He's really renowned way before his television years. He was actually quite well known as a gossip columnist. He wrote for a a paper, the New York Daily News, which is still publishing daily today, still a big paper in New York City. In the 1940s, they even sent him out to Hollywood. Uh, to sort of, you know, write about, you know, movie stars. And I mean, everyone, you know, Fred Astaire, all the major stars would like, you know, play golf with him. And he really, he hobnobbed with, with all these people. He knew them all uh, because they wanted to be in his gossip column. Because, you know, in the days before television, being in a major gossip column like that was really a ticket to, to get more notoriety. So everyone wanted to be nice to him because they wanted, you know, mention in his column. In the late 1940s, the very, very beginning of television. And you know, he had these these frustrated, you know, dreams of, of fame from radio and he had, you know, had failed so much in radio. And he, he saw television. He thought, you know what? I am not going to fail in this medium. I, I fail constantly and I'm not going to fail in television. He actually wrote that in, in his one of his columns before his show debuted, his television show debuted. He wrote a column about how he had made up his mind. He had failed in radio, but I'm not going to fail in TV. And so, you know, CBS you know, launched a, a variety show in, in 1948. It was called Toast to the Town. They didn't know who to ask to be the, the MC of the show. I mean, there, there weren't, of course, any television stars because TV had not existed. And here was Sullivan. He was a fairly well-known, quite actually quite well-known gossip columnist. So they thought, well, let's ask this Sullivan guy. And, and the thing is, you know, the CBS thought that, you know, or they knew that uh, Sullivan could get guests because Sullivan knew all these people because he wrote about them in his gossip column. 
they gave Ed a $300 a week budget to book guests. So, I mean, the, the entire hour of, of performing was filled with a $300 budget. And so, you know, much of those that, that early year or so, Sullivan actually had to pay his, use his own money to pay guests to get on the show, if you believe that or not. But one of the reasons CBS was banking on him because he had the power of newspapers, which is sort of ironic when you think about it. A television network was relying on the power of a newspaper, you know, to, to get guests, which, of course, you know, things have really changed now. And that early show, those early shows were, were really, really rough. Sullivan, of course, was extremely nervous. I mean, this was live television. It wasn't recorded. So like when that camera blinked on, you were talking to the, to the live audience. And at that, in those early days, the live audience was just the New York area. It wasn't even a nationwide you know, network at that point. CBS was not quite nationwide. He, he was horribly nervous. The, the show was you know, slow moving, but the thing that really saved him early on was all those years producing vaudeville shows. He knew how to put on a show and he knew what the audience liked. I mean, he didn't need to guess what the audience liked because in a sense, he was one of them. He was an everyman. So he, he, if he liked it, they were going to like it. He, he had a very good sense of, of what they were going to like. As the 1940s turned into the 1950s, uh, the show really did really well. And, and CBS, you know, was, was very happy with it. They had, you know, advertisers and, you know, Ford Motor Company began advertising with it. And, and CBS realized, you know, they had a hit on their hand. Meanwhile, uh, NBC looked at it and they said, oh, a variety show on Sunday night, huh? Well, if, if this Ed Sullivan fellow is doing that, we can do it far better than this Ed, Ed Sullivan guy. He, he's, he's boring. The thing that they didn't fully realize is that Sullivan himself was, of course, you know, not an entertainer. He was, he was a very, you know, Uncle Ed, very slow measured performer. But, but the way that he knew how to put on a show, the way he could balance the various acts on stage, you know, people really loved that. Um, Colgate-Palmolive sponsored the NBC show. And they thought, you know, well, you know, we will put so much money into this. We will just steamroll, you know, the, the Sullivan show. And, you know, backed by the Colgate-Palmolive's ad dollars, they, uh, they booked all sorts of big acts. They had Abbott and Costello, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, which were at the time were like super, super hot. They had had, a, you know, Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin had a very hot nightclub act in New York City. And the NBC show did pretty well, but, you know, Sullivan really dug in his heels and he used all the skills he had, he had learned in all those years at Vaudeville. And he, at the end of like a, a two-year period, he had really outproduced the NBC show. And so his ratings were actually beating NBC even though NBC's talent budget was far greater. It was simply his ability to, to produce a show really was, made, made the show a huge success. And, you know, when, when CBS first hired Sullivan to do the show, it was called Toast of the Town. But by the early 1950s, he was able to renegotiate his contract, and it would now be called The Ed Sullivan Show. And it was really his show. And he produced it, and he chose the acts every week. You know, he chose what order they were in. Even though he was the MC of the show, what he was really doing, he was producing the show by choosing the acts, deciding, you know, who was going to be on. You know, with every passing season, he kept his, you know, sort of finger on the pulse of America. He knew who was big and he kept, you know, relating to the culture at large. And, you know, as, as TV really became a, a prime part of American life in the 1950s, you know, everyone was gathered around their black and white TV. He was really, you know, the one who just, who sort of, he, he was, he became Uncle Ed to the mass audience. They looked to him as sort of the imprimatur, so to speak, of, you know, what is good. He had, he had a consistent gift. He never faltered. 
you know, he, he always sort of balanced, you know, something really wholesome with something really jazzy. Um, he would have athletes on. He, would, he might have a choir on. He'd have comedians on. It was a mix. And there was always something for the entire family. There was something for little kids, something for the teenagers, something for the grownups. There might be, a, you know, a Broadway show. It might be actually a cat. The live cast from a Broadway show would walk across town and actually perform a scene, in, you know, in live television. You know, it could be Frank Sinatra. It could be, you know, the larger, you know, the, the, the most popular comedians of the day. Everyone was on The Sullivan Show. And James, you write that he didn't just have his finger on the pulse of entertainment. He was a forward thinker, too. Tell us about that. He really pioneered uh, black performance. He really believed in, you know, diversity on the air. And he was, he was way ahead of his time in this regard. And, and there were, you know, times where some of the sponsors and some of the audience even got upset. Like, you know, there might have been an element of, of racism in the audience, but he refused to, like, bow down to that. And there's this great moment. Ed booked the singer Nat King Cole in, in the mid-1950s. Nat King Cole, of course, is black. Nat King Cole did this sort of this Hawaiian theme, and there were two dancers dancing along stage with him, and sort of this Hawaiian, you know, they're all, everyone was in Hawaiian garb. Nat King Cole was very elegantly dressed. Um, and there were like white, white women dancers, you know, swaying their hips along with Nat King Cole's sort of jazzy tune. And in 1955 or the early 1950s, that was absolutely unheard of for like white performers and black performers to be on stage together was like, oh, my God, I'm sure, you know, much of the audience would have been shocked by that. But but Sullivan refused to, uh, you know, be cowed by that. He, he constantly booked black, black performers. Uh, it was sort of a, an historic moment when he, when he uh, the singer Pearl Bailey, he gave her a kiss in the cheek one night after she performed. It was like, oh, my God, that outraged the audience. But it just did not matter to him. He was, he was going to go ahead and do that. I mean, it was something he, that, that, that mattered to him greatly. You know, James, Sullivan took a leap of faith that most of us wouldn't think of as a hard decision, and that was booking Elvis Presley. You know, Elvis Presley was, of course, exploding on the scene in the 1950s, and Sullivan realized that if he was going to keep his ratings up, he needed to be able to book these really huge ratings. And, and he looked at, at, at Elvis and he was full of hesitation at first because Elvis was a rock and roller. There was something dangerous about, about you know, Elvis Presley. And when we come back, we're going to continue with that thought on Elvis Presley and how Ed Sullivan made the choice to head in the direction and embraced a lot of these rock and rollers and how he balanced the old cultural norms with the new ones and how all of that catapulted his show into, well, let's just say the stratosphere. When we come back, more of the life of an unlikely impresario, and in the end, a very likely one as well. And that is, of course, Ed Sullivan and the Ed Sullivan Show. More of this remarkable life story, this quintessential American story, here on Our American Stories.
Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like when the tailgate party shows up at your house after the big win. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this could sideline your savings. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. There's plenty to celebrate in March and Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. And we're back with our American stories and with James McGuire the author of Impresario. James, you were just telling us about how having Elvis on The Sullivan Show was a risky move, but Ed did it anyway. What was that all about? You know, on the other hand, I mean, he had, Sullivan had to have him on. And so what he did is he, he did his best to, to, to balance it out. He, he had Elvis on, you know, multiple times. And it was it was going to be huge. It was actually quite controversial because the show was so wholesome and Elvis was not known to be wholesome. And the very first night that Elvis was on, it was it was a huge cultural moment. I mean, uh, there were literally 60 million people tuned into live television that night, which is about a third of the country at that point. What Sullivan did was 
he instructed the cameraman to only shoot Elvis from the hips upwards. So you couldn't see those, those dangerous uh, swiveling hips that, that Elvis did. And uh, you could just see him singing. You know, he, 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 he did his best to sort of sanitize Elvis for the, for the section of the audience that was outraged and yet still, you know, mine him for ratings. After that first show, there was enormous controversy. I mean, people said, oh, that is filth. You know, Ed has lost his way. You know, this is really trash. Why is this trash on the air? On the other hand, the ratings were like so huge that, you know, Sullivan had to kind of keep trying to get him on. So he, he had him on again. The second time he booked him, he actually, he booked a children's choir to sing before him. It was very sort of religious and, and, and you know, very, very sweet and wholesome. And then, you know, Ed introduced Elvis and, and he talked about Elvis and he said, you know, he's a, he's a fine young boy. A fine young man was the phrase. He, he, he's a fine young man. And it was, it was Ed's way of saying, look, don't be threatened by this guy. You know, he, he's okay. Which, yeah, it was kind of like Ed beginning to go down that slippery slope of, well, the show had been really, really wholesome, but, you know, rock and roll is, is growing and, uh, and, and we need to help. We, we need to have the, the, this on. So Elvis was a big cultural moment. And it sort of, it was, it was almost like the, the, the birth of, of rock and roll in, in the American living room when Ed, when Ed Sullivan had Elvis Presley on, on television, something changed in America. It was, it was, it was, something shifted there, which brings us to the early 60s. You know, there's this, the, the idea of the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, which the, the Beatles debuted on Ed Sullivan's show in, in February of 1964. And there's this story that, that Ed always tried to promote about how he discovered the Beatles. It's actually not true. He always claimed that he was coming home from London and he saw the Beatles getting off a plane in London and it was a mob scene. He decided right then and there to actually to, to book the, the Beatles. In fact, th- there was a young talent agent who worked in Europe named Peter Prashard that Ed trusted. And Peter said, I think these Beatles guys, you know, might be worth booking. Ed wasn't sure at first. And, and indeed, the Beatles had really hardly been heard of in America at that point. They had maybe some radio play, but they were not big. Um, and, you know, they're certainly, you know, a, a really a rock band, as soft as the Beatles may seem now, they were truly a rock band in their day. And um, he decided that, you know, he, he saw the potential for them. He, 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 he could see the, you know, the, 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 uh, the, them going up the charts in England. He thought, okay, it, it's, it's time to take a chance on these young lads. But he was going to downplay them as, at, at first as well. I mean, in that time in 1964, you know, the headliners for the Ed Sullivan show were making simply like $10,000 know, a night. The Beatles actually got paid $3,500 for, for three different performances, $3,500 a night for three different performances. And they weren't even the headliners to begin with. As the show came up, as February of 64, that, that first show came up, you know, the, the cultural momentum built so much. It was like, you know, oh, my God, the, you know, the, the teenagers were beginning to discover who the Beatles were. You know, they came to America. They gave a few interviews. They seemed really charming. They had long hair. It was pretty outrageous. And that night, February 9th, 1964, they debuted. They played three songs. The crowd went absolutely crazy. The teenage girls, you know, were just could, could not control themselves. Ed had to like, you know, restrict the tickets. It was really hard to get a ticket that night. He made a big deal of giving his ticket, giving a few straight tickets to some friends because everyone who had a teenager wanted to get a, a seat in, in the auditorium that night. 
a total of 74 million people watched that first show that, that night. It was, it was again, I, I, really the, the night that Ed Sullivan had the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. In a sense, it was like the true beginning of, of the rock era in America. He, we'd have them on live two more times, and then he had a number of recorded performances. But it really changed things. And it sort of, it did create the beginning of sort of a schism in the show in that Obviously, the ratings were through the roof, and there was a there was a segment of the audience that absolutely really loved the Beatles. There's another segment of the audience that that really detested the Beatles. And you know, I read a lot of the reviews in the Washington Post and other you know serious newspapers, and you know they're outraged and they, that you know these these boys don't know how to make music. It's just you know a lot of noise, and uh, they need to get a haircut. You know, get a job and get a haircut and you know, but Sullivan did, again, he played a similar game that he had done with Elvis, do his best to sort of, you know, soften the Beatles image and, you know, be friends with them and have these publicity photos taken. The Beatles are actually nice young boys. You know, he, he really played that as much as he could. And if, if anything, it made the show, you know, really, really the dominant cultural platform of the 1960s. It, it became, the, the, the kind of platform where, you know, if, if Ed had you on, you were going to be famous, whether it was a comedian or a juggler or, you know, certainly a, a music band, um, something theatrical. If you were booked in those Ed Sullivan show, it, it meant, you know, you were famous and, and, and the Beatles helped move that process along. You know, one of the, the problems was that the show was always the big tent and, and it had something for everyone and, you know, the kids and the, and the teenagers and the, and the, and the grownups and, you know, mom and dad and, Problem is, as rock became more dominant, you know, the, the, the audience didn't always, couldn't always sit through what, what the other audience members liked. And so that rock and roll caused something of a schism in his audience, even, even as it, it, it sort of jet fueled the, the ratings, you know, a big part of the audience was very, very upset by it. And, you know, the Rolling Stones were, were getting big right there in the early, the, the mid 1960s as well. And, you know, Ed did his best to sanitize them. Of course, the, the Rolling Stones had a song called Let's Spend the Night Together. And Sullivan insisted that they change the lyrics to Let's Spend Some Time Together, which, you know, the Rolling Stones agreed to because they really wanted to be on the show because it was so big. I mean, when Mick Jagger actually sang that lyric, Let's Spend Some Time Together, he really kind of played with it very theatrically, sort of rolled his eyes like I, he kind of made fun of it for those people who knew what the real lyric was. He sort of almost mocked it, but I mean, they, they wanted to be on the show. And it was something, one night, actually, he had this, the Rolling Stones on a number of times, and he actually insisted that they wash their hair before they go on, because he, he was really, it, it, it pissed Sullivan off that they had long hair. He did not really like these long hair types. And I interviewed Joan, Joan Rivers, and, and I, I read about that he had asked the Rolling Stones to wash their hair, and, and Joan Rivers was on one of those nights. He said, yes, that he really did. He insisted the Rolling Stones wash their hair. It was just kind of like... Ed, Ed was, you know, endlessly square. He he wanted the ratings, but you know that that square part of him never went away. No, it never went away. And part of the audience was really square, and part of it wasn't. Imagine seventy-four million Americans watched the Beatles and their first appearance, and the country then had one hundred ninety-two million people. By the way, even Uncle Walter did not approve. The great Walter Cronkite complained about the music. He said it wasn't for him. And he did not like the long hair and made notice of it. And thus came the great divide in America. There's Ed Sullivan right in the middle of it. When we come back, more of this remarkable story about the impresario, Ed Sullivan, with James McGuire here 
on Our American Story. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like when the tailgate party shows up at your house after the big win. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this could sideline your savings. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. There's plenty to celebrate in March and Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. And we're back with our American stories and the final segment with James McGuire and his book, Impresario, The Life and Times of Ed Sullivan. James, tell us about the production of the show and what made it so unique for that kind 
of product. The interesting thing about the show is that it remained live television throughout the run. It ran from 1948 to 1971. It was live television the entire time. So if there was a mistake, there was a mistake. And, and Sullivan really ran it so, so carefully, minute by minute. But I mean, sometimes he would need to tell performers later in the show, hey, you know, these earlier, earlier show performers ran a little long. You know, you're going to have to cut down your act a little bit if you want to get on the air. George Carlin, the, the comedian, Carlin is on the Sullivan show many times and it would always, you know, be very nerve wracking to him because George Carlin would have this routine put together like five or six minutes, you know, carefully constructed routine, you know, one line, you know, led to the next. And he would be booked for like, you know, minute, minute 50 in the hour long show. Sullivan would come backstage at, at around minute 38 and go, well, you know, we're running long. You're going to have to cut two minutes from your act. And, you know, in the next 10 minutes before he went on the air, you know, George Carlin would have to figure out, okay, how am I going to cut down my act from six minutes to four minutes? So it was, I mean, it was really, really nerve wracking for a lot of performers to have to make changes to, and deal with, with live television. Things really took a turn, James, when the Doors performed on the show. And that band was, of course, led by Jim Morrison. Tell us about that incident. So the Doors, of course, were going to, as they became famous, they, you know, they, they were booked, Ed definitely booked them on the show. And Again, he didn't like, you know, the, the lyrics. There, there was a drug reference, you know, something along the lines of, you know, you, you take me higher. And it, it sounded to Ed like, you know, someone's doing drugs. He, he didn't want that on the air. And so he said, you know, you're going to have to change the lyrics. Jim Morrison and the band kind of hemmed and hawed about it. And, they, you know, they really wanted to be in the show because there was so much fame involved with being on the show. Morrison agreed, okay, I, I will change. I will change the lyrics. And... In the control room, they had ways of dealing with with you know rock bands. They 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 could change the, they could sometimes you know turn things down and turn things up, which they they would do on occasion. They would shift a cam, camera angle, so they were they were ready for Morrison, but they expected him to change the lyric as he did. So as, when it actually came to the live performance, he went ahead. He sang the original lyric as it was written in the song. And he just he refused, and it was kind of this this classic moment where. You know, this rebellious generation simply was not going to be controlled by the establishment anymore. And, you know, that was a real problem for Sullivan. So the producer of the show went, went backstage and, and said to the, the, you know, the doors, well, Mr. Sullivan was going to book you boys five more times, but you'll never be in this show again. And, you know, Jim Morrison, you know, looked at him and said, look, you know, we did Ed Sullivan. And, and of course, that, that was the end of the doors. But it, it did create a time period where the rock bands were getting edgier. It was the late 1960s. It wasn't sort of the wholesome, you know, finger snapping Beatles quite as much anymore that, you know, the acid rock was coming up. It, it really created a problem for the audience. It, it exacerbated the earlier problem where like parts of the audience simply could not handle it. They, they would not want to stand, you know, sit through the, you know, the rock music. Obviously the teenagers loved it. Uh, and the Sullivan show was, you know, a big part of a rock band's career in the 1960s was playing the Ed Sullivan show. The problem was, you know, the, for the, for the older, older audience who, uh, who hated it, it caused a problem for the show. And it, it, it's really one of the things that helped bring the show to an end and that before rock and roll, everyone could sit together and, and watch this show. And, you know, you might not love all of it, but it was all, all going to be okay. Once these harder edged, you know, acid rock band started getting on part of the audience said no we're just not going to take it anymore we're just and so that it, it caused a lot of problems with, with ratings for the show and 
it was almost like the beginning of a trend in television where there was narrow casting before there had been the, the big tent was really Sullivan's classic formula. But, you know, American culture had begun to, to break into it, its various niches so that that big tent wasn't working for Sullivan anymore. Finally, uh, you know, CBS said we can't, you know, the, the ratings aren't there anymore. And it, the show was canceled in 1971. Ed was hoping it could run for a couple more years. He was really, really heartbroken. Um, his world ended at that point. And he had suffered in, in those later years in the, 1960s, in, in the later 1960s and early 70s. He suffered what, you know, what appeared to be, it was never officially diagnosed as Alzheimer's, but it, it, it had the feeling of kind of a dementia. He had a lot of memory problems beyond just what an elderly man might. And he had an extremely lonely period. And I mean, his family was, didn't live right next to him. And so as much as they loved him and did their best, it's like, I, I, he had a, for all, for all the glory of the show and the glamour of the show and the enormous fame that the show brought him. And really, in a sense, he attained his lifelong dream was to be famous. He wanted to be famous and, and he became famous. At the very, very end of his life, I think he, he was very lonely and I think he felt lost. James, tell us about Sullivan's final days and also about the legacy he left. In his very final days, he was living in New York City by, by himself and, you know, very, very lonely. And he contracted esophageal cancer. You know, the doctors knew he was dying. They didn't want to let him know. His family didn't want to let him know because they wanted to keep his spirits up. But they, they knew, in fact, he was dying. He was admitted to the hospital. Ironically, he died on a Sunday night, later in the evening on a Sunday night. And it's, it's kind of like the ultimate irony of his life in that, he had lived for Sunday nights I mean, from 1948 to 90, 1971. Every Sunday night for all those years had been about the show. And then so, you know, he had lived for Sunday nights and indeed, you know, he died on a Sunday night. So I think it's something almost poetic about that. There's a few things I would say is, is, is the legacy of him is that if you look at the, the shows and the, the shows are again stored at the Library of Congress. I mean, those, those 23 years from 1948 to, to 1971 are really an incredible, you know, compendium of the brightest lights in American culture in that time period. The best of Broadway, the best of classical, he booked classical music, the best of rock music, you know, the comedians, entertainers of all stripes, athletes. I mean, something like, you know, 10,000 performers were on the, the show over the course of his 23-year run. And the fact that that record exists is, is an amazing record of American culture in those years. I mean, he, he was such a, a news hound and sort of a, he kept his finger in the pulse. When things changed, he changed with it. He was never, he was never booking last year's act. He was always booking this year's act or maybe even a little bit ahead. And so that the, the show becomes a complete, you know, sort of cultural repository of, of, of what was so special, what was so wonderful and fabulous about American culture in those years. In a sense, his idea of the big tent in which there's something for everyone became outdated for television itself. I mean, television moved into serving narrow slices of that audience. But there is that image of the big tent where we all sat together and watched television as a family. And we all, we, we shared this communal experience. It's really very, very beautiful. And you've been listening to James McGuire and his terrific book, Impresario, The Life and Times of Ed Sullivan. And in a way, it's a walk through the 20th century. There wasn't anybody or anything that didn't want to come on that stage and share their talents. Nobody didn't come there and show up. And what made the Sullivan show a success ultimately 
in the end led to its demise. Rock and roll became that medium that had at its core separation from the old and the young. I mean, the infamous Pete Townsend, quote, never trust anyone over 30, and that he hoped he died by the time he was 30, was at the root of rock and roll. It was rebellion at, at its essence. And in the end, Sullivan embraced it. And in the end, well, the country was fragmenting and the country was being split apart by not only this music, by a new generation hellbent on separating from their family traditions and from American traditions often. I can still see in my head vividly that performance by Jim Morrison because it wasn't just edgy, it was dark. And when he sang the lyrics from Light My Fire, he shouted, girl, you can't get much higher. Shouted it. He reveled in the rebellion and in sticking it to Sullivan. And this was something I think that Ed felt a deep betrayal about because here he was trying to advance the careers of these folks and the doors and bands like it. And in the end, they had no respect for him and no regard for his audience. And in the end, Ed died a lonely man, had spent no time on his family, had chased fame, got the fame, but something big was missing. I mean, the end of the book is really tough because he loses his wife and his show at about the same time. And in the end, he lost his life. He had wanted so desperately, by the way, to make it to his 25th anniversary, and he got to 23. 10,000 performers on the show in 23 years, an achievement that no one has matched since. The story of Ed Sullivan. And by the way, pick the book up, Impresario. Go to Amazon.com. You won't put it down. It's quite a read about ambition and fame and the limits of both in living a good and happy life. Again, the story of Ed Sullivan. The book is Impresario. The Ed Sullivan story. The story of fame and its limits here on Our American Stories. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like when the tailgate party shows up at your house after the big win. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this could sideline your savings. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. 
Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 